Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. We've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to come together for a few minutes to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. We are a city-led network of nearly 100 city members around the world, working to build urban resilience that enables cities to thrive no matter the shock or stress faced. And I'm pleased you've joined us for this episode hosted with our partner, Smart Cities World, with sponsorship from our friends and co-conspirators in urban resilience, the World Bank. Cities are truly on the front line of delivering a future that is resilient, sustainable, economically robust, healthy and equitable for all of us. It is no small charge. At the Resilient Cities Network, we provide forums like this to bring together knowledge, practice and partnerships that support and encourage city leaders and urban practitioners in their efforts. Now, over to my co-host, Paul Wilson, chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be doing this with you. I'm chair of Smart Cities World's Advisory Board, and every year more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 30,000 people are members gaining access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than a thousand cities with new members every single week. And in the day job, I'm Chief Business Officer at Connected Places Catapult, the UK's innovation accelerator for cities, transport and places. Together, we're sharing ideas that solve urban challenges, bringing people together from the public, private, academic, and not-for-profit sectors. Our Urban Exchange podcast will take us around the world to meet people working on the front line. Welcome to this eighth episode of Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange, hosted today by Francis Gasquier, Practice Manager at the World Bank in Singapore and an advisory board member of Smart Cities World. Francis discusses with his colleagues, Mega Mukim and Mark Roberts, an important new report released by the World Bank examining the interrelated stresses that arise from climate change and urban growth. Mega and Mark are the principal authors of the report titled Thriving, Making Cities Green, Resilient and Inclusive in a Changing Climate. To understand how green, resilient and inclusive cities are today, the report defines a global typology of more than 10,000 cities. From this massive dataset, 10 key findings emerge. Francis will also discuss with his guests the concrete policies outlined in the report for making cities more green, more resilient and more inclusive, and the climate co-benefits that may result. It's an impressive piece of work, so let's get at it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for hosting us at the Urban Exchange podcast. My name is Francis Guesquier. I'm a practice manager at the World Bank, and I'm delighted to be here with two colleagues, Mega Mukim and Mark Roberts, to talk about their new report, Thriving, How to Make Cities Green, Resilient and Inclusive. So, Mega, let's dive right in. Why this report? Yeah. 
No, thanks, Francis. And, and it's going to be a lot of fun doing this podcast. So thanks for the opportunity. So I guess the question is, how do we approach urban development if we haven't actually understood how climate change is actually leading to the, the shocks and the stresses? I was working in Freetown in Sierra Leone many years ago. And owing to torrential rainfall over three days, there was a massive landslide that took place, which killed almost 1,200 people. And the then incoming mayor, who's still there, Yvonne Aki Sawyer, she focused her work on land use and waste that was driving and compounding the climate risks. It really didn't seem as though we had a good handle on how climate change and urban development were linked at that point in time. And we also found that climate change folks and economists, they don't normally talk to one another on these issues. So we wanted to change that. And we are hoping and we think that this report is going to demonstrate the different touch points and how the concepts are actually connected to one another and hope to drive that dialogue further. So you're trying to push the reflection on how cities need to integrate climate change into their development plans. Now, before we even dive into some of the findings and policy guidance of the report, I have to ask this question. The report is based on data from 10,000 cities with population over 50,000 people around the world. Mark, I know you are one of the pioneers in the use of nightlight to monitor economic activities in cities, but still, how does one even gather that kind of information? Can you tell us how you got there and what for? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Um, So, I mean, historically, we know that cities have been great drivers of prosperity and this prosperity that cities create has um, also helped make cities more resilient to a wide variety of different types of shocks. Um, But at the same time, we know cities are coming under increasing pressure from climate change. But it's not just climate change. Um, Climate change is a symptom of an even bigger problem, this more general erosion of natural capital that's going on in the world around us. Um, At the same time, we've still got the lingering effects of the COVID-19 pandemic um, that's left a large hole in local government finances. And inequality in many cities is high. In some cases, it's increasing. And so against that backdrop, what we wanted to do was to build a picture of how green, how resilient, how inclusive cities are today across the entire globe. Um, and to better understand the interplay between those characteristics of cities, the greenness, resilience, inclusiveness, and the impacts of climate change, to be able to inform a policy dialogue. And so that's how the report came about. On this question of data, yeah, I mean, it was a massive undertaking. But fortunately, um, we were kind of building on a very good database, which already exists, um, This is called the Urban Census Database. It's a database that was developed by the European Commission. Um, One of the great things about our database is it uses a globally consistent definition of cities because normally different countries have different definitions of cities, and so that's a big problem. This database overcomes that problem. Um, And so this European Commission database gave us much of the basic data that we needed in terms of, for example, city populations, levels of carbon dioxide emission. Um, It's really a goldmine of information. At the same time, it lacked other data that we needed um, on different aspects of the greenness, resilience, inclusiveness of cities. And so we undertook an effort to really supplement that database 
with data from a wide variety of other sources um, on weather patterns, levels of access to basic services, um, the heights of all buildings globally in each of these 10,000 cities. Um, in doing that, we were in many ways bringing together several years of data collection efforts um, that we've undertaken in the bank and others have undertaken um, for a variety of reports. And so this data set that underpins the report is, uh, I would say, almost the aggregation of a decade of effort in terms of data collection at the bank and beyond the World Bank. So a huge amount of data. You then classified cities in different categories and drew findings for each category. Now, Mega, let's dig into some of these findings. Of the 10 findings that merited inclusion in the report, what stood out and is there something that you found surprising? Uh, there were two that really stood out for me. So the first one, what was really surprising, is just how little the shares of global urban CO2 emissions are accounted for by cities in low-income and lower-middle-income countries. Only 13% of cities in lower-middle-income countries and only 0.2% for cities in low-income countries. Now, this is not to say that these cities shouldn't be paying any attention to the rising emissions. We also find that while cities in high and upper high-middle-income countries account for the bulk of CO2, the cities in low-income countries are just not acting fast enough to moderate their emission trajectories. And this will eventually offset any emissions reductions that actually come from the high-income cities. So this was one finding that was quite surprising. Another one which was surprising is, um, I think we expected this in terms of some of the results, but were maybe taken aback by the scale of the finding. We did some research with Vladimir Chluba and Isha Zaveri, and we demonstrated how uh, climate change related shocks that took place outside of cities led to the growth of urban settlements. And we measured this by high resolution satellite images. Now I worked in the Sahel for several reasons and I saw firsthand how climate stresses that were linked to growing intensity and length of droughts in the rural areas were linked to growing incidents of violence and displaced populations, most of which ended up in urban areas anyway. But I was very surprised that this finding, this link between climate shocks in rural areas and the growth of urban settlements actually held globally across different regions, albeit to varying extents. So you're saying that although emissions in cities in low-income countries are currently negligible, Inaction in these cities, because they're the fast-growing one, would eventually negate action in all other cities. And then you also highlight that this is not just about managing shocks in the cities, but that shocks in rural area are eventually bound to affect urban population because they lead to urban migration, food insecurity, and other factors. This is quite a call for action. Mark, what was your big surprise? I guess for me, the single most surprising finding in the report is um, the fact that with climate change um, occurring, we would expect sort of construction building to be moving away from the locations that we expect to be most severely impacted by climate change. Um, be moving away from what we call in the report um, future bad locations. However, we've done work, um, we did work with um, Remy Jedwab from George Washington University, and we present analysis in the report that shows globally that's not the case. Globally, within countries, if anything, construction seems to be moving towards these 
cities, these huge bad locations that we expect to be most severely impacted by climate change, even as the future of kind of rising temperatures, rising sea levels kind of um, approaches. Um, and I mean, it's actually the case for buildings of all heights, including even skyscrapers, the very tallest buildings. And um, I mean, that's notable because like tall buildings are very long-lived structures, um, long-lived investments. And yet these investments are occurring in these future bad locations. Um, and so I think for me, that was a surprising finding. What's surprising is the fact that, you know, this is a global finding again, holding countries across the world. Thank you, Mark. I think that we've all observed cities that continue to expand in hazard prone area, but it is interesting uh, that it comes out so clearly in your analysis of the data. It makes you wonder if we're not all running into a wall. Mega, in the report, you describe very well how climate change acts as a stress multiplier and how it is increasingly impacting the daily life of urban dwellers. You also show that a lack of inclusiveness contributes to a lack of resilience of cities and vice versa. Can you talk a bit about that for a moment? So in the second part of the report, we analyze how climate change affects cities and people in cities. And we find that some of these issues are devilishly difficult to study and tease apart because everything seems to be connected with one another. So as you were saying, climate hazards and stressors, they don't operate in isolation. They interact and compound with one another, but they also interact with the underlying urban challenges. A couple of examples. So climate hazards often tend to co-occur, you know, tropical cyclones and heat events, often one increasing the intensity of the other. The impacts can spill over, which generates um, cascading effects. Uh, for instance, when you have rural wildfires that increases urban population, it can increase food prices and water scarcity, storm surges or extreme heat, for example, in Europe, led to power outages and so on. The impacts are also compounded. So you have you know, poor urban planning and waste management that could lead to worsening of floods and landslides. This often happens in a lot of cities in Africa and Asia that we've worked in. High carbon intensity of electricity can lead to worse air. This happens a lot in Central Asia and the Western Balkans. And you have increased energy poverty when other macroeconomic shocks hit, as we've been observing in Europe. And then the last one is that climate change really exacerbates the inequalities. You know, back to your point about inclusion, the slums often tend to be in high risk places. The poor often have less access to the information on the climate risks and the poor often suffer disproportionately from the hazard risks and their ability to adapt is also impaired. Now, Mark, Mega just talked about the poor being particularly vulnerable to climate hazards. At the World Bank, we like to think of cities as escalators out of poverty, recognizing that people move to cities in search of a better life. Do you think that climate change is reducing the benefits of moving to cities and, in effect, slowing down these escalators? So this idea that cities can act as escalators out of poverty, it's an idea that was really popularized by um, the Harvard urban economist Ed Glazer, who's very well known. Um, many of your readers might be familiar um, with his 2012 book, Triumph of the City, which popularized this idea of cities acting escalators out of poverty. And this idea is based on a lot of empirical evidence relating to the advantages of living and working in cities. And 
So um, for people who live and work in cities, ideas, information, knowledge about job opportunities tend to spread more easily. In cities, um, people tend to have um, access to a wider variety of job opportunities. Um, but in the report, we present um, evidence for three countries, um, for Chile, Colombia, Indonesia, that climate change-related shocks and stresses have been slowing down these escalators. Um, and so in Indonesia, for example, we find that the probability of escape from poverty tends to be lower in cities that are subject to more extreme rainfall, higher flood risks. And this is because flooding, for example, can make it more difficult to get to work. And also because poor households only have limited financial buffers to be able to deal with these climate change-related shocks. Um, I mean, I don't want to be too doom and gloom, however. Um, it's not the case that these escalators have completely stopped, just that there's been a slowing down of these escalators. And in the final part of the report, we do talk about potential policies that can help to speed these escalators uh, back up, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. Thank you, Marge. This is actually a, an excellent segue to the last section of the report, where you don't go as far as making blunt recommendation on what city officials should do, but you discuss the policy instrument they can use to improve greenness, resilience, inclusiveness in a world impacted by climate change. Can you tell us a bit about how you went about developing this policy framework and how, actu how you actually expect cities to adapt it to their particular circumstances? Yeah, sure. Um, this is a global report. Um, and so, uh, I mean, it was quite daunting to think about this question when we started, um, because in a global report, of course, it's not possible to provide detailed policy recommendations for individual cities. Um, and so instead of doing that, we wanted to step back. We wanted to take stock of the potential policy instruments that not only local leaders, um, but also national leaders have available for them to be able to tackle these climate change-related challenges to make cities more green, more resilient, more inclusive, and group them into different, different categories in a way which makes logical sense and which is of practical use to them. So originally, you know, we wanted to group all these instruments into three categories, um, for me, at least, it's difficult to keep more than three things in my mind at any one time. Two is difficult. However, we weren't quite able to do that. So we um, ended up with five categories of instruments um, after a lot of discussion, consultation. And the idea is that amongst these five categories of instruments, um, there's the potential to mix and match um, instruments to arrive at a tailored policy mix um, that takes into account a particular city's local circumstances. And we provide some guidance on how to go about doing that in the overall framework. So five broad sets of instruments for city leaders to draw on. Megan, let's get into it. What are those five categories? As I understand it, the order in which you describe them is deliberate. Just want to be clear that because we're talking about a global report and so many different typologies of cities, we're not looking at providing these cities with a policy map, but really a compass, right, of how they can thrive in a world which is facing a very fast changing climate. 
So there are five broad sets of policy instruments, information, incentives, insurance, integration, and investments, or what we call the five I's. And the order in which these uh, actions are taken are, in fact, deliberate. We think that some of them should be coming up first and then others later, but we do understand that there might be different circumstances. So, for example, information would be to help people, businesses, governments make better decisions. You can think about information as big chunks of information, um, like early warning systems, or much more fine-grained information, like building codes or zoning regulations. And the point is that information also needs to be timely and accurate so that it can be useful and provide sort of a foundational base here. The second one is essentially looking at incentives. So while the provision of information can help factor the risks into decisions, it may not be sufficient to motivate economic agents. And that's where the incentives come in. Incentives could have really high co-benefits, even at low costs. There's a paper that was carried out in Egypt that looked at the removal of fuel subsidy programs that led to a reduction in traffic and cleaner air, alongside the intended aim of balancing the budgets. The third one is insurance, and that's really to minimize the financial impact of the disasters through risk sharing and to help secure access to post-disaster financing quickly and efficiently. Cities actually have have a big role here. They could reduce the high insurance costs, which could help the poorest and the most vulnerable They could make insurance compulsory, reduce the costs of claim processing, cover the first loss, and so on. The fourth one is integration. And when we say integration, we're talking about reforms that are providing more compact urban development, so integration within the city that could result in lower emissions and also integration across cities, right? cities with rural areas. So again, you could think about reforms that reduce the cost of vertical development, You could think about policies that facilitate transition for intercity migrants and in some cases could even encourage migration away from vulnerable parts of cities or vulnerable cities themselves altogether. And then the last and the fifth I is investments, uh, which can then be used to prevent and respond to shocks. Think of flood control systems, environmental buffers. Investments can be used to anticipate shocks. Think about investments that can guide urban growth away from higher risk locations. And then finally, investments can also be used to retrofit. You can think about building upgrades for higher energy efficiency. As I said at the outset, I don't think we think we're providing a compass. So whilst you could think of the five I's in a specific ordering, depending on the cities that we're looking at, we might want to sandwich or use the I's differently. Thank you, Megha, for this comprehensive explanation of uh, the proposed framework. Uh, I must say that the idea of the five I's is quite useful to think through the various areas of possible policy interventions. Now, in the report, you also discuss different level of decision-making. Could you talk about who makes those decisions and how different level of government must work together to actually drive results on the ground? Yeah, so we look at these five policy instruments, but we don't stop at just what could be done. We also delve into who wields these instruments, coming back to your question, and also how the policy choices could be prioritized and sequenced for implementation. So the first thing to recognize is that cities have a limited policy space. They don't control all of the administrative uh, policy making, and oftentimes they don't have the capabilities to implement. But nonetheless, they can be opportunistic. Mayors can, can do a lot. 
In the report, we discuss something called the mayor's wedge, or this is sort of the policy space that allows the city leaders to effectively crowd in actions by other actors that could, um, and then lead on climate action together. We also talk about how different types of cities, so cities which could be differentiated by their size, their income class, um, also the types of challenges that they face. How different types of cities might combine, prioritize, sequence the five I's, the interventions that we were talking about. How might they toggle between them, sandwich them together, the different bundles of policy interventions. The, the good news is obviously that cities can arrive at greener, more resilient and more inclusive outcomes in many ways. That's the whole point of the report. And one of my favorite examples is you know, in one of the findings is that we see that poor people, when they choose where to live within cities, they're actually making trade-offs between accessing jobs and basic services on the one hand, and then safer neighborhoods on the other hand. And no one should have to face such awful choices for their families. So if you look at better urban planning and service delivery, this can actually help to solve several problems in one fell swoop. You can make a city more compact, that means make it greener. You can reduce the flood risk in cities, so you're making them more resilient. And then you can improve the lives and livability of cities, in, which is essentially making cities more inclusive over time. I just want to mention that this podcast is called Cities on the Frontlines. Our job as the World Bank Group is really to help those policymakers, including those cities that are, that are on the front lines. And so I, I really hope that with this report as a compass, um, you know, that can give some ideas on, on how these cities can thrive in the future. Mega, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. The title of the report is Thriving, Making Cities Green, Resilient and Inclusive in a Changing Climate. You analyze more than 10,000 cities around the world to come up with a set of policy recommendations that can be tailored to particular characteristics of any city sort of a compass for city mayors and decision-making. The report is available online on the World Bank Open Knowledge platform, that is openknowledge.worldbank.org, or you can simply Google the title of the report. Again, that is Thriving, Making Cities Green, Resilient, and Inclusive in a Changing Climate. Mega, I'm sure I'll see you again very soon, maybe in Washington. Mark, we're scheduled to discuss your upcoming report on the economic impact of urban heat. Thank you both so much for giving us some insight on this flagship report. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Francis. This was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, Francis. It's been a real joy. Climate change and urbanization is intensifying across the world, especially for cities in low- and middle-income countries. The World Bank's report convincingly demonstrates that to achieve green, resilient and inclusive urban growth, policymakers at both the national and local levels need to work closely together, drawing on a sophisticated suite of available policy instruments. By acting now, policymakers can ensure that the world's cities not only survive but thrive in the face of the perils of climate change. Stay tuned for the next episode and don't forget to subscribe and listen for more insights from city practitioners and mayors from around the world.